Matthew chapter 10. As always, I count it a tremendous privilege to have the opportunity to be here with you, examining God's inspired word with you together as the people of God. This morning, the main text of the sermon is derived from Matthew chapter 10, beginning in verse 16 and proceeding through verse 33. I had the first reading from Pastor Scott begin at the end of chapter 9, however, to set the context, because the context of a text is always important. We here at Abiding Grace Church are decidedly not among those who pull and pluck Bible verses out of the text to make a point that the text itself or the author of the text is not making, because a text without a context is just a proof text for somebody's pretext. That is, you and I and anyone else can make the Bible say just about anything you and I or they want it to say. So we have to be careful. The Apostle Peter says, there are some things in Paul's writings that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. That's 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 16. And the direct context of Matthew chapter 10 is found at the, at the end okay, of Matthew chapter 9. Look there, if you will. Verse 36, When Jesus saw the crowds, these are the Jews among whom he was walking and teaching and healing. When Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion for them, because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray earnestly, to the Lord of the harvest, to send out laborers into the harvest. These Jewish crowds in the first century are the immediate target of Jesus. So in Matthew chapter 10, we see Jesus sending his 12 disciples out in fulfillment of the prayer that he tells his disciples to pray in verse 38. Jesus says to his disciples, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. And this should be our prayer this morning as we transition to the 21st century. So we're here in the middle of Matthew chapter 10, which is sometimes referred to as the apostolic discourse, or perhaps the missionary discourse. This is the second of the five long discourses in Matthew's gospel. The first, of course, we have seen being the Sermon on the Mount in chapters 5 through 7. There will be three more long discourses in Matthew as Pastor Scott and I proceed through. Pastor Scott kicked off chapter 10 back in September with the first 15 verses of the chapter. He introduced us to this ragtag group of 12 disciples that we see in verses 1 through 4. And he noted that these disciples are converted here into apostles in Matthew 10. As they are in fact sent to preach by Jesus himself. That's what the word apostle means. It means one who is sent And they are sent only to Israel. And I'll come back to this in a few moments. Pastor Scott also noted that here in Matthew 10, we have a bit of a mashup. The instructions are not only for the 12 who were sent by Jesus to the lost sheep of Israel, but also there are instructions here for the larger church, for us even, after the cross, after the resurrection, after... The Ascension. And I think Pastor Scott is correct in this, but it's on me to prove this to you. So why do I, Pastor Scott, believe this is the case? Well, for a couple of reasons. First, from Matthew 10 itself. We have to draw this out of the text. Look with me, please. There are a couple of places where Matthew generalizes the words of our Lord. For example, look with me at verses 32 
and 33 of Matthew chapter 10. Jesus says this, So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. Look at verse 37. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Verse 38. Whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Verse 39. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And verse 40. Whoever receives you receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. Now, there's not any deep theology in this little Greek article. It's pronounced ha. And it's translated here in these verses as whoever. It could just as easily be translated as those who. Nonetheless, the point is that all of these statements from Jesus are true regardless of whether they are true about first century Jews or 21st century Gentiles. That person you work with, if he loves father or mother than he loves more than he loves Jesus, then it is still true that he is not worthy of Jesus. That family member who makes fun of you because you got religion, if she does not take up her cross and follow Jesus, well then she's not worthy of Jesus either. So we should see that some of these truths that Matthew records for us here in chapter 10 are generally true. They were true then, and they are true for us today. One other reason we might think about as to why these instructions in Matthew chapter 10 from the lips of our Lord are not limited to the first century. They are not limited merely to the twelve that are headed out to Israel is because Matthew ends his gospel with what we call the Great Commission. You know it, of course. After his resurrection, Jesus came and said to his disciples, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son, of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And with this, Matthew is done writing. There are no follow-on instructions from our Lord. And this is ascending, is it not? It is. But is this sending just to his disciples who are sitting there in the room with him? Of course not. And I'm as sure as I can be that no one in this building today believes that Jesus' great commission at the end of Matthew's gospel applies only to those who were standing right in front of him. No, this is ascending for the church. This is ascending for me. And for you. And Pastor Mike made some excellent, excellent remarks in this regard just last week in his sermon from 1 Corinthians chapter 3. The question is this then. Did we get any instructions from our Savior, the head of the church? I believe we did. And we will see some of those instructions today here in Matthew chapter 10. Finally, in his sermon, Pastor Scott noted that the preaching of Jesus' disciples to Israel was necessary because the Jewish religious leadership of that day had utterly abandoned the people of God. That's why they were the lost sheep of the house of Israel, verse 6 in Matthew chapter 10. And the message, of course, is the message of the kingdom of the heavens. It's the gospel which they were instructed to say was at hand, Matthew chapter 10, verse 7. Now, as we pick up in verse 16, I'm going to focus this morning on us, those who are sent, the apostles with a small a. Please note, we are not apostles with a capital A. The last of those died something like 1900 years ago. And anyone who tells you today that they are an apostle with a capital A, I would say, please be wary of that person. These kinds of self-proclaimed apostles have a way of claiming a special authority 
And they often lead people astray. Nonetheless, we have all been sent to proclaim the gospel to a lost and fallen world. And in case you've been living under a rock for the past few years, you should know that this world, this culture we're living in, needs the gospel badly. So I'm going to focus on those who are sent. What we should expect. Lord willing, Pastor will pick, uh, Scott will pick up next time in verse 34. And he will focus on the effects of our evangelism as he closes out chapter 10. So this morning is what we should expect. Next time we will see the effects. And there will be four main points in the sermon this morning for those of you who are keeping score. First... I'm going to quickly address a somewhat controversial text. I'm going to interpret it and then get it out of the way. You excited about that? Right? Always good for controversy. Second, the heading will be do not be naive. Third, the heading will be be prepared. And the final heading will be do not be afraid. So do not be naive. Be prepared. Do not be afraid. That's where we're headed. Here we go. So let's get it out of the way first. What does verse 23 mean? What does verse 23 mean? I see all your heads going down. You can't wait to hear what verse 23 means. I want to address this verse, get it out of the way, because it is not the main thrust of the sermon. And it is not the main thrust of my sermon, frankly, because it is not the main thrust of the points that Jesus is making here in Matthew chapter 10. In verse 23, we read Jesus saying this, When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. I want to just quickly address the second half of this verse where Jesus says to his disciples again, You will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. Comes. If you read through commentaries, you will find various interpretations of this statement. They range from the majority historical interpretation to those which attempt to spiritualize the text in such a way as to ensure that this statement here in verse 23 applies to the church at all times. So I'm just going to give you the majority historical interpretation because I believe it is the correct interpretation in this case. For your information, this interpretation is held by the likes of Alfred, Barnes, Benson, the Cambridge Commentary, John Gill, McLaren, and Don Carson, among many others. And notably, notably, this is also the interpretation that is held by some premillennial dispensationalist commentators as well, with whom we here at Abiding Grace Church would certainly disagree on a variety of topics. For example, if you hang out at blueletterbible.com, which Brother Jason mentioned here last week, you will find David Guzik's commentary featured in multiple languages there. David Guzik, a decidedly dispensationalist commentator, says this about verse 23. So please, this is a quote. This is one of the hardest to understand statements of Jesus in Matthew. Could Jesus really mean that he would return to this earth before the disciples would make it through all the cities of Israel? If so, this would make Jesus plainly wrong in his prediction. Instead, it is better to see his coming, look at at the end of verse 23, it would be better to see his coming in this passage as his coming in judgment upon Judea in AD 70, which did happen before the gospel came to every city in Israel. This is the fulfillment of the day of judgment warned of in Matthew 10, 15. Do you see it there? The day of judgment, Matthew 10, 15. In many ways, Guzik continues, the judgment poured out by God upon Judea through the Roman armies in AD 70 was worse than the judgment that came upon Sodom and Gomorrah. 
Guzik then quotes Don Carson, who says this, When Jesus' disciples face persecution, they must take it as no more than a signal for strategic withdrawal to the next city where witness must continue, for the time is short. They will not have finished evangelizing the cities of Israel before the Son of Man comes in judgment on Israel. And double quote. That's Don Carson in David Guzik's commentary, and the emphasis is mine. There will be much more to say about this particular topic as Pastor Scott and I work our way through Matthew's Gospel. But the point for this morning is that Jesus, here at the end of Matthew chapter 10, verse 23, is foreshadowing the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. And he's encouraging his disciples, again, in context, direct context of Matthew 10, he's encouraging his disciples to preach the kingdom throughout the cities of Israel. Get on with it, he says. Go and announce the kingdom to Israel. For the time is short. Alright. Let's get on to the main point of our text this morning. The overarching subject matter in verses 16 to 33 of Matthew chapter 10 is this. What should those who are sent by Jesus to announce the kingdom, what should those who are sent expect as they evangelize? Okay, so this is for us. Let's dive in. Number one, do not be naive. Expect persecution. Do not be naive. Expect persecution. Let's look at it together. Verse 16, Matthew chapter 10, right there in front of you. It begins this way. Behold, Jesus says, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of of wolves. Now I'm just going to let that hang out there for a moment. That's one of the nice things about being in the gym, right? I can use the echo for a fact. Have you ever thought about this simple statement from the lips of our Lord? Again, listen, please. Jesus says, I, Jesus, the loving, caring Savior, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. And as if the imagery of sheep in the midst of wolves is not enough, the loving Savior Jesus follows up with these other statements. Look with me, if you will, at your Bibles. Verse 17, Jesus says this, Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. You ever had a good flogging? Verse 18, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. Verse 21, brother will deliver brother over to death and the father his child and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. Verse 22, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. Verse 24, a disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. Verse 25, is it enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master? If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? I mean, let's just be upfront about what this text is saying. Jesus' disciples in first century Judea and in 21st century America, Jesus' disciples are being sent by Jesus himself out into a world that Jesus says is poised to devour, to deliver, to drag, and to put to death them. Us. Me. And you. There are no safe spaces out there for us, brothers and sisters. Now, you might be familiar with a website called firstthings.com. If you are not, I commend it to you. Back in February at firstthings.com, a man named Aaron Wren, R-E-N-N, wrote an article called The Three Worlds of Evangelicalism. In this article, Wren says that within the story of American secularization, there have been three distinct stages. The first he calls positive world. 
This would be America, he says, prior to 1994. In positive world, society at large retains a mostly positive view of Christianity. And to be known as a good church-going man was part of being an upstanding citizen. Publicly, being a Christian was a status enhancer. Christian moral norms were the basic moral norms of society, and violating them would result in negative consequences. Then there was neutral world, says Aaron Wren. Neutral world, Wren argues, characterizes the time between 1994 and 2014. During these two decades, approximately, society took a neutral stance toward Christianity. That is, Christianity no longer had privileged status, but was generally not disfavored. Being publicly known as a Christian had neither a positive nor a negative impact on one's social status. And Christianity was a valid option for a person's life and worldview within the pluralistic public square. During this time, Christian moral norms retained some residual effect on the culture. Then comes what he calls negative world. Negative world begins around 2014 and is the world that we're all living in right now. Society has come to have a negative view of Christianity. Being known as a Christian is now a social negative, particularly among the elite domains of society. Christian morality is expressly repudiated and seen as a threat to the public good and the new public moral order. And subscribing to Christian moral views or violating the secular moral order brings negative consequences. I commend the entire article to you for your reading this afternoon, but the point is this. Aaron Wren is correct in his analysis, and those of us who are older than 16 years of age need to realize this. Negative world is now. And I want to encourage all of us, myself included, by realizing... That our Savior and Lord, in His infinite wisdom, has prepared us for this in advance. I mean, there's a sense in which, when the church lived in positive world, before 1994, or even in neutral world, before 2014, that these words of Jesus, look at them, verse 16, these words of Jesus, when he says, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, it was almost like during those times, we might read Matthew chapter 10 and say something like, oh, come on Jesus, lighten up, Lord. It's not that bad. Brothers and sisters, the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 10 have always been true. The world is and always has been against the church. God's people are always sheep in the midst of wolves. It's just that, please listen, in positive world, the church is lulled to sleep by a veneer of churchianity. And then what? Weakness. The church does not engage lost sinners in their midst. The church doesn't know how to defend the Christian worldview from the scriptures. And then the scriptures themselves are lost. And eventually the gospel is lost. And when the gospel is lost, well, welcome to negative world. Look around. No more friends. No more veneer. No more pretending. No more benefits. Listen, no more benefits of playing churchianity. Not outside those doors. And don't say you haven't been warned by Jesus himself. He says, do not be naive. It is time to expect persecution. In fact, in another more recent article at a website called truthexchange.com, a man named Dr. Peter Jones builds on Aaron Wren's three phases of American Christianity and makes the argument for the coming fourth phase, which he calls persecution. And unless God, in His sovereign grace and mercy, unless God brings to America and the rest of the West another revival, another awakening, then this is surely our fate and the fate of our children. We should pray for revival. 
We should pray for awakening. We should cry out to God for a great move of the Holy Spirit in the mass regeneration of Western hearts. And we should pray for sharp minds and stiff spines in the face of whatever is to come, as the Apostle Paul says, that we might be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all, to stand firm. Ephesians 6 verse 13. Brothers and sisters, do not be naive. Look again at verse 24, please. Jesus says very plainly, A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. Do you see who's in view there? That's us and our Lord. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, which they did just a couple of chapters ago, how much more will they malign those of his household? So we need to get over it. We are sheep in the midst of wolves. Heading number two. Be prepared. Expect to engage. Given everything that I just said, I would be a fool to expect that somehow I was going to escape engagement with a world that hates me and is looking to kill me. So not my words, they're the Lord's. It would be like an infantryman waking up, preparing to leave his tent, smack dab in the middle of a war zone, headed out without his helmet and without his vest and without his rifle. His brothers in arms would say to him, dude, what do you think you're doing? Where are you going? So unprepared. So I want you to see that here in Matthew chapter 10, Jesus tells his disciples, not only do not be naive, for I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, but he also says to them, be prepared, expect to engage. Look again at verse 16. Jesus says, behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So, or therefore, same word, Be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Now, I'm going to tell you, this has been the most challenging part of the sermon for me. What exactly does Jesus mean when he says that we are to be wise as serpents and innocent as doves? And I emphasize the word exactly because I want to be faithful to this text. I've been working hard not to bring my ideas to this text, and some brothers in the room can testify to that. So I'm going to begin my exegesis with the direct context, and then move out to some wider implications that I trust we will be able to see from the larger context of the Scriptures. First, in direct context, please look with me at verse 19, 20, and the first part of 23. Matthew 10, verse 19, Jesus says, When, not if, by the way, but when they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Verse 23, when they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. So a couple of things we should see here. First, I want us to see that there is a time to speak and there is a time to flee. Let me say that again. There's a time to speak and there's a time to flee. I believe this distinction, knowing when to stay and speak... When to flee is in the category of wisdom. And we can see this most certainly in the life and ministry of the Apostle Paul. So let me give you a couple of examples. You don't have to go there. You can if you want. I'll be in Acts chapter 9. But you don't have to go there. Let me just read to you a few verses. Verse 19 of Acts 9. Just after his conversion for some days, Saul, later called Paul of course, was with the disciples at Damascus. And immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name? And has he not come here for this purpose? To bring them bound before the chief priests? 
But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. So here we see that Saul, Paul, speaks. And right after this in chapter 9, picks up right in the next verse, verse 23, when many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him, but his disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. Here we see Saul flees. He gets out of town. So perhaps this is something that we will need to learn. When we ought to stand our ground and speak, even if it gets us flogged by the authorities, when we ought to speak and when we ought to flee for our lives. Apparently, not all standing and speaking is courageous, just as not all fleeing is cowardly. Let me give you another example from Acts. This is amazing to me. Prior to Saul's conversion to Christ, so now I'm going to move back in time just a little bit. (coughs) Saul had received orders from the religious leaders in Jerusalem to round up all the troublemaking Nazarenes and put them in jail. I trust you know the story. So he's on his way to Damascus to do this and Jesus meets him on the way and shall we say gives him a good talking to During the persecution that Saul was meeting out against the disciples of Jesus, in Acts 8, beginning in verse 1, we read this. Saul approved of Stephen's execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church. And entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now, listen, this is the point. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. So the apostles, capital A, stay in Jerusalem, which was the hub of the early church for sure, to preach the gospel to the Jews in Jerusalem. But many of the other disciples were scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. And what did they do after they fled? Again, Jesus said they, they went about preaching the word. Now listen, Jesus had said to his disciples in Acts 1.8, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And apparently, the whole in all Judea and Samaria part wasn't going as quickly as Jesus would have liked. So Jesus ordains, listen, Jesus ordains the persecution of the church by Saul the Pharisee, which results in the fleeing of many of Jesus' disciples out of Jerusalem and into the regions of Judea and Samaria. Samaria, So that... that, It's amazing. So that they would be obedient to the instructions that Jesus had given to them prior to his ascension. And then, after all this, after using the persecution by Saul the Pharisee to promote the spread of the gospel outside Judea, into Judea and Samaria, Jesus converts Saul to be a disciple and to become the apostle to the Gentiles. People will say things like, Jesus is in control of what's going on. He knows exactly what he's doing. And some of the disciples stayed, and some of them fled. And it was all for the glory of Christ and the building of his church. So there's a time to stay and speak. Speak what? The words of God is given by the Holy Spirit. Look at verses 19 and 20 in Matthew 10. Verse 19. When they deliver 
you over, Jesus says. Do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say. For what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. Verse 20, for it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Now, please listen. In the first century, before the scriptures were written down, Jesus promised his disciples that they would be given the words to speak. And they were. You can read all about that in the book of Acts. Now that the scriptures have been written down for us, our responsibility is to know what the Holy Spirit has already breathed out, what he has said inerrantly and infallibly. Do I believe that the Holy Spirit will guide us into what we should speak in a given situation? Yes, I do, as we are attuned to Him and the fruit that He is bearing in our lives. But please let me be clear. It is the Word of the Spirit of God, spoken by Him and written down for us, that ought to be the regular source of our evangelistic endeavors. Why? Why the Word? Because we are not ashamed of the Gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith as it is written the righteous shall live by faith Romans 1 16 and 17 thus the gospel of Jesus Christ contained in this book is the power of God unto salvation Brothers and sisters, our aim should be to read this book, to know this book, to understand this book, and to proclaim unashamedly the words of this book so that the Holy Spirit himself who gave us this book can regenerate lost sinners and gloriously bring them into the kingdom of Christ, which, if you recall, is exactly what he did for you. So there's a time to speak And there's a time to flee. And God has ordained both for his glory. Our challenge is to be wise and discerning enough to know the difference. And I'm not going to spend any more time on this this morning. In many ways, this wisdom comes with experience and counsel. May God provide it to us. I want to move on to more of what it means, though, to be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. This is a challenging text. If we look at the evangelistic ministry of Jesus and his apostles in the scriptures, we can see more of what it means to be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. We saw first that it means that there's a time to speak and a time to flee. And there's an and there in verse 16. Please look at it. We are to be wise as serpents and and innocent as doves. We are always to be both wise and innocent in our evangelistic endeavors. So let me give you this for you to think about. When we look at the evangelistic ministry of Jesus and his apostles, what we see is a spirit-influenced approach that in many ways depends on the situation they are in. It depends in many ways on who or whom they are talking to. And I think here is where the imagery of serpents and doves becomes a little clearer. What is a serpent? Rather, what is a serpent like? What are its characteristics? Now surely we know that in the Bible, serpents are overwhelmingly viewed in a negative light. Makes sense. I hate snakes. Yet Jesus here in Matthew 10, Jesus himself gives his disciples the imagery of a serpent to inform our evangelism. What about a dove? Got some doves here in the second row. What is it about a dove? What characteristics does it have that Jesus wants us to have in mind as we think about our evangelism? Let's start with the dove. 
First, it's important to look at this word innocent in verse 16. It means literally free from guile. No sneakiness. When in reference to metals, it means pure. No impurities. The Apostle Paul says to the Christians in Philippi, Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent. There's the word. Children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud, Paul says, that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Those words are for us today, says. Also, when I think about doves, the word that comes to my mind is approachable, even vulnerable. I mean, imagine a small child presented with the opportunity to pet a dove being held in the hands of an adult. I don't imagine any reticence to approach. There's no fear of attack. Generally speaking, white doves don't have the reputation of gouging people's eyes out of their head, for example. Those would be the black crows in the Bible. Jesus himself was approachable, was he not? Even from the perspective of tax collectors and prostitutes and all other kinds of sinners. They came to him. They ate with him. They drank with him. One prostitute even washed his feet with her tears. And so I think that in using the imagery of a dove, Jesus is exhorting us to be innocent, pure, approachable. You know, maybe this sounds familiar, loving, joyful, Peaceful, patient, kind, gentle. Alright, what's with this serpent thing? What is it about serpents that Jesus wants us to learn and to employ in our evangelism? Remembering that we are to be innocent and pure as doves, I think Jesus wants us also to be crafty, strategic, Not nefarious, not underhanded, but strategic in our thinking and in our speech, like a snake who's challenged, bobbing, weaving, looking for an opportunity to gain the advantage in the conversation. Is this not what the Apostle Paul was master at? Acts 17, you don't have to go there, but you know it. Paul's in Athens. What's he doing? Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign deities. Because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. Listen, he he reasoned with the Jews in the synagogues and with the devout persons. He conversed with the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. And what is he doing? Is he talking about the weather? No. Luke says he's preaching Jesus and the resurrection. He's preaching the gospel. He's evangelizing these philosophers. And in the next verse, this is amazing, in the next verse, verse 19, we read this, of Acts 17, verse 19. And they took him, they took him, and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? He wasn't chasing them. No, apparently what Paul was saying was sufficiently engaging that they took him to the Areopagus, and they said, Hey, Paul, tell us more. So he goes to the Areopagus, and he's looking for an inn. He's strategically trying to figure out a way to get to the gospel with the greatest thinkers in Greece. So he's walking around Mars Hill, and what does he see here? He sees an altar dedicated to an unknown God. And he says to himself, that's it. That's my inn. Verse 22. Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. The God, therefore, you worship as unknown This God, the one true God of the universe, I now proclaim to you. 
never deceiving, never manipulating, never being underhanded, never adulterating the truth in any way, but always strategically looking for an opportunity to tell people about what God has done for sinners like us through the life, death, resurrection of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. To the Jews, Paul was a Jew. To the Gentiles, Paul was a Gentile, though never lawless. To the weak, Paul became weak. He became all things to all people for the sake of the gospel. Should this not be our approach? So much more could be said about strategies for evangelism. But there's lunch. I trust this will spur conversations, which would be great. We welcome those, and I'm ready as soon as the benediction is spoken. For now, though, let's move on and finish up this morning. Remember, we've had do not be naive, expect persecution. Be prepared, expect to engage. And finally, under heading number three, do not be afraid. Expect the temptation to fear. Look with me at verse 26 and following of Matthew 10. They're open in front of you. Jesus says this, verse 26. So have no fear of them, referring to the authorities. For nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Verse 28. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not therefore. You are of more value than many sparrows. I want to say, listen please, it's completely normal for a sheep to be afraid of a wolf. That is normal. So don't beat yourself up if you get a sense of fear or anxiety when you think about engaging in an evangelistic discussion. Or if you're dragged before the authorities under the threat of persecution or flogging or even pain of death. If you feel that or or sense that you will feel that fear should that time come, then newsflash, you're normal. But... Do you see our Lord telling us here that upon further review, we actually have no basis for that fear? This is amazing. Look at the words of our Lord. There's only one thing that can chase away a fear. Do you see it there in verse 28? Look at it again. Verse 28. Jesus says... Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Why, Jesus? Why should I not be afraid of a mere man? Rather, he says, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. See, just as there is only one way to overcome an inferior, fleshly, sinful passion, and that is by the pursuit and desire of a greater, godly, righteous passion, so, listen please, there is only one way to overcome an inferior fear of mere mortal men, and that is by replacing it, replacing it with a greater fear of a greater being, namely God himself. If you fear the right things, you won't fear the wrong things. Look at verses 32 and 33. Jesus says, Everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But, verse 33, Whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. If you are afraid of men, please listen, if you are afraid of men, 
Then these are your meditation verses for the week. Verses 32 and 33. Maybe the rest of your life. Can you imagine, listen, can you imagine getting to the gates of heaven and you're desirous to hear the words from the mouth of the Savior, well done, my good and faithful servant, and instead you hear, away from me, I never knew you? If that thought doesn't cause fear to run through your nervous system like a lightning bolt, then friend, I do not know what will. And it is that lightning bolt that will cause puny little men with swords and guns to shrink in your sight. Because God himself has been magnified in your eyes. So brothers and sisters, in this negative world, when we're tempted to fear, we cannot stay there. Let us have no fear of those who can merely kill our bodies, for if, when that happens, when that happens, we simply transition into eternity, into the loving arms of our great Savior. Paul desired death. Why? Because he knew that it was Jesus who waited for him on the other side. Philippians chapter 1 verse 23. Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also, the body they may kill, God's truth abideth still, His kingdom, this one we preach in the gospel, His kingdom is forever. Brothers and sisters, we're sheep in the midst of wolves. But make no mistake, we have a good and great shepherd who calls us to follow Him into the fire, turned up seven times as hot, to follow Him on the Via Dolorosa, on the way to the crosses that He has prepared for us. Listen, please hear this. It is only through His cross that our Savior ascended into glory. And this, brothers and sisters, is the way that He has marked out for us His people whom He has redeemed by His precious blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach that he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. And the one who endures to the end will be saved. Matthew 22, there, uh, chapter 10, verse 22. Saved from what? Saved from our sin? Our slavery to sin with the hope of a resurrected and glorified body fit to live forever in the presence of the Savior himself. Save from the wrath of God that we deserve because of our sin, the wrath that Jesus himself drank on behalf of his people. And saved, listen, saved from this wicked generation. I mean, when the judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah is on the way, ought we not to be anxious to get out of this city? The harvest is plentiful, the Savior says. The people we know, the people we meet, they are lost, they are hurting, they are without hope in this world. May God give us the courage that we need to persevere and to proclaim what we have heard in the light, to proclaim it from the rooftops by His grace and mercy and by the power of His Holy Spirit, whom He has given to us as a guarantee of our inheritance. Come, Lord Jesus. All glory and honor and power and dominion be unto God and His Son, our great Savior, this day and forevermore. Amen. Let's pray.